everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I don't really have an intro plan because to be honest with you, I just kind of sat down and decided to say, fuck it. Why not start a podcast? I, I don't really have a name planned out or anything. I've jotted down a few ideas. Uh, one I thought was funny, it could kind of go like bush light because I don't have really like a set topic like most podcasts have. Um, they typically focus in like one niche area, but I, uh, I've got a ton of really random interests that don't really coincide with each other. So uh, I was thinking kind of like a for the farmers, by the farmers, like ADHD, by ADHD, for ADHD. I don't know. Uh, it's just going to be a fucking mess. Uh, if you want to stick along and listen, I'd appreciate it. If you don't want to, it's not going to hurt my feelings. Uh, I might talk about sports, maybe like a little weather, what's going on in my life. Um... I guess to tell you a little bit about me, my name's Jacob. Uh, I just graduated from University of Florida a couple months ago. Um, me and my girlfriend, we live with two dogs, and we actually just relocated to Memphis. She just got a job, and uh, she's working for this solar panel company. And uh, so far, Memphis has been a pretty nice transition. Uh, I actually went to school for weather and geography. And one thing I've learned in the two months that I've been here is that there is uh, quite an interesting weather pattern. We get severe weather almost every day. There's hail, heavy rain, wind. Um, I've personally always, <clears throat> excuse me, I've personally always loved tornadoes. I saw the movie Twister probably when I was like fucking three years old. And I just thought that was the coolest shit ever. Steven Spielberg absolutely killed the special effects. And I have wanted to see a tornado ever since. Of course, I've never seen one, but... Definitely moving to this area, if I decided one day, you know, I wanted to maybe get some footage and storm chase, I am in a very prime spot. Uh, in Florida, we got a lot of severe weather, but there wasn't really a, much of a tornado threat, or it was more hurricanes. It's, it's funny, I actually mentioned that. My parents, one of the most surreal experiences I've ever had in my life. My parents last year, in my last year of college, went through Hurricane Ian, so actually my parents and my grandparents, when it made landfall, they were both in the eye wall. And uh, the last time that I talked to my parents before uh, cell service went dark for about 24 hours, uh, they called me and they said that they were getting about 125 mile an hour winds at their house. And my mom, my stepdad, and my sister were all hanging onto the front door, keeping it closed because for uh, context, in case anybody doesn't know, uh, this hurricane was supposed to hit a little bit more north, and instead it made a right angle turn, sort of like Hurricane Charlie, for those of you who are familiar with it, back in the mid-2000s. It was supposed to hit up near the Tampa area, and at the last second it made a due 90-degree turn for whatever weather atmosphere factors that caused that. And my parents had no time to prepare, no board, no shutters or anything up. And they were literally holding their door closed and asking me for updates because, as they know, I'm a weather nerd and I'm sitting in my college apartment just frantically watching any update that I can get. And I told them that they've got about 10 minutes and that the eyewall is going to come. They're going to have about 15 minutes to, you know, get their shit together, assess if there's any damage and figure out what to do from there. And the phone actually cut out while I was on the phone. And that was the last time I heard from them for about 24 hours. Um, luckily, I have some other family there that I was able to, you know, ensure everybody was okay. Like, in my family, I think the only 
the worst damage that there was was some roofs, like insurance covered it all. Everybody's got new roofs. Uh, to be completely honest with you, I'm, I, I personally am very blessed. I know a lot of people mutually who you know lost some people and lost a lot of things, lost their entire home. But as a, a blanket statement, generally speaking, the entire area of Southwest Florida has been very, very grateful for you know, the power companies and even the state government who have stepped in and been able to really make a difference, just allowing people to get back to a sense of normalcy in that area. I, uh, my stepdad is a general contractor. He, his niche market is the island of Sanibel. And at one point, the entire island was 16 feet underwater, which is kind of hard to comprehend. But um, to help me comprehend that after everything happened, he had a bunch of customers that, you know, are affluent and don't spend all of their time on this island. It's one of their properties. So they called him and asked if it was possible that he could get out there and, you know, assess their properties. And he took me by boat because at this point it wasn't actually able, you, the causeway was completely destroyed in like three places. And initially they had said that it was going to take about a year to get the causeway back to, you know, normal function. And the government stepped in, expedited the process, actually managed to get the causeway functioning within 30 days, which is impressive. Whether No matter what side of the political spectrum you fall on, that is just objectively an impressive feat. Anyways, I got sidetracked. Um, he took me out by boat because this was before the causeway was repaired. And some of the things that I saw on that island that day will be with me for the rest of my life. Like, I'm talking, there's Range Rovers sitting on top of mangroves with all the windows busted open, car alarm going off, just completely destroyed. We walked into apartments and condos that are on the third story with silt just sitting, covering the entire floor like the ocean was in their fucking living room, three stories up. It just bone chilling. It looked like there was no drywall in the house. This is 30 feet in the air. It was just wild. And he had to record these videos and send them to the customers. And I just know the first time, if that's your property and you open that video, imagine just seeing all of your belongings. And obviously, as I mentioned before, these people are affluent. It's it's not like, you know, they're losing everything. But still, you know, that's that's people's shit. Like, that's really hard. And I can't imagine reacting to that for the first time. There was there was a lot of emotions that are just... I, I saw them. I saw everything for the better. It was hard. But those emotions were very humbling. And part of me is glad that I got to see that perspective that day. Uh, and I also saw some incredible things, some great things that, you know, kind of give you faith in humanity. There was some small businesses that, because nothing had power, they're using coal-fired grills and giving out hot dogs and hamburgers to first responders and people trying to help. And there's American flags that are ripped to shreds that are standing up on the beach and just... It, it was a really powerful day, and I'm, I'm glad I got to experience that. Um, it's kind of funny how I got to this point, um, talking about Memphis and moving here with weather. That's kind of what I meant by the fucking ADHD podcast. Uh, but anyways, um, I guess a little bit more about me. So I grew up playing hockey. Um, that's one of my 
the reasons I, I mentioned sports. I'm a sports nerd, and since I just moved to Tennessee, I have recently had access to legal gambling in this country, and that is fucking awesome. It's also a little dangerous. I'm not gonna lie. I've had to, you know, control myself. But I've I've gotten I've gotten pretty lucky so far in two months. I've hit a couple of nice little like ten leggers. I think I've hit two ten leg parlays or something. But um. I'm originally from Massachusetts, so as you know, you can probably fucking click off now. I'm going to alienate about 50% of my base by saying this. I'm a Boston sports fan through and through. Go Bruins, Celtics, Red Sox, Patriots, all. I will never change. I don't give a shit. I, uh, I'm 24, so I kind of got to wait. I was a little bit young for the early years of the Brady era and the, you know, the 04 Red Sox team, but... Uh, it's it's pretty important to me. It's pretty important to my family. I'm very blessed that I got to witness it. And hey, don't hate us because you ain't us. All right, I'm sorry. Like, I can't help that you were born into o- Oklahoma City. Like, the Oklahoma City Thunder. Like, that's not a sports city. Boston is is just always has. It always will be a sports city. Philly can't compare. I was absolutely ecstatic watching the implosion of. First, Joel Embiid, and now that the offseason has gotten underway, the entire implosion of the 76ers, it is just music to my ears. Um, as far as the Vegas Golden Knights with the Stanley Cup championship, though, that that, that was pretty nice. I, 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 was, I am a Bruins fan, so as you know, I was heartbroken and just, like, embarrassed. Uh, we deserved all the shit that we got on social media because – Speaking of implosions with the 76ers, that was actually a worse implosion, implosion to watch. It, it, that was pathetic. I've never seen, actually, I have seen a team do that before. And the team that did that was the Red Sox last year when they were the best team in baseball in the playoffs against the Houston Astros. And then I think it was, what, game three, ALCS, where we completely forgot how to hit a baseball. This was post-trash can era for the Astros, so it's not like they were fucking getting our pitches or anything. They just figured us out, and nobody knew what to do. It, it was pathetic. It, it really was. Like I've, Boston has some of the best moments and some of the worst moments. Just it, it almost evens itself out. One of my favorite childhood memories was watching that Game 7, Boston Bruins versus the Toronto Maple Leafs in 2013. We were down 4-1 to one with like 10 minutes to go in the third period. This is, if you want a textbook definition of a Boston sports team, this fucking 2011 Bruins team was it, it, you want them to go to battle for it. These guys were fucking horses. Nathan Horton, Milan Lucic, these guys were incredible. We're down four to one, and I'm, I don't know, 12, 13, and I am sitting there. I'm like, fuck this. This is over. Me and my Boston family were sitting here fucking screaming at the TV, and for some reason, my mom was never, I mean, she's generally optimistic, but was never really like this watching sports, and she's just like, hey, it's not over yet, and I don't know. People tell you that sometimes, you know, like, yeah, shut the fuck up. Like, you're just trying to make me feel better. And I don't know, it kind of resonated. A few minutes later, it's 4 2. A few minutes later, I think we get down to like three minutes left, 4 3. And anybody that knows me can vouch for me when I say that Patrice Bergeron has been and always will be my favorite NHL player of all time. Patrice fucking Bergeron comes down 
ties the game, blows the roof off the TD Garden, comes down in overtime and scores again and sends the Leafs home and they pan to fucking Maple Leaf Square and the despair on the thousands of Maple Leafs fans is just, it's music to my ears to this day. It is hysterical. But, hey, Toronto finally got out of the first round this year just to get absolutely bamboozled in the second round. I could have told you that was going to happen. The the Toronto Maple Leafs are really the Dallas Cowboys of the NHL. There's no better comparison. They are. It's a perpetuating cycle of this is our year. Oh, we're really good at this season. Oh, Austin Matthews is on pace for 60. Oh, wait, Austin Matthews forgot how to score. Now we're in the playoffs. Oh, even even this year, if you know you made it to the second round, like the fact that that's a debate whether or not that's a win for your team or not is kind of a statement as to where you're at. Like we, you have no room to work with because you decide to pay three guys over eleven million dollars. Like now you that that forces you to go and get guys like Ryan O'Reilly, who object, you know, I like Ryan O'Reilly, but if that's your marquee signing, like that's what you have to bring in and that's your only option to be a difference maker, like, I'm sorry, but you did it to yourself. Like, good on Kyle Dubas for getting out of that shitty situation because I predict that within two years, that entire office is cleaning house. Jason Spetz is done. Kyle Dubas saved his ass by getting out of there and going to Pittsburgh. Um, I guess that's really, there's not really much going on like right now in terms of sports. I'm trying to just you know reflect on the last month or two that's happened, the, wrapping up the playoffs and stuff. The only real major sports that's going on right now is MLB. And, I mean, the Red Sox have kind of turned it around recently. Brian Bayo's pitching pretty well, but you know, they're mediocrity. Everybody was kind of expecting mediocrity going into the season um, after, you know, the, the Red Sox do their famous, we're going to get everybody to fall in love with a player like, you know, Xander Bogarts or Mookie Betts, or I mean, I could go back like 15 years over and over. We just continually get these guys that everybody loves. The entire fan base is like, pay them, pay them, pay them. And you know they don't pay them uh, so we're doing what we can do I mean like it is what it is I think they're over 500 now so that that's pretty good but like ALDS like is that best case scenario like uh, we're really looking to like Trevor's story we don't know if he's coming back there's a huge question mark with Chris Sale like I heard them talk. I was watching the athletics game yesterday, and they're talking about, oh, you know, he's throwing again. Tanner Houck is throwing again. Like, I like Tanner Houck, but he's always he's always getting injured. Chris Sale. I was actually talking about this with my uncle the other day. Chris Sale and Nathan Avaldi, the last World Series that we won, both of those guys did things to their body that should not be done at all. And Nathan Avaldi basically took years off of his life and his career to get the Red Sox a World Series, and we just let him walk. You know, I kind of feel the same way about the Red Sox and the Patriots. 
we were, or at least right now, because things could change pretty fast. You know, now you make some trades and the, the team looks completely different from one year to another. The Red Sox specifically, I've, I've noticed like the 2010s especially, they trended. They were typically like, they could be the best team in baseball one year and then have the worst record in baseball the next year. No exaggeration. But as far as, you know, the Red Sox and the Patriots in the 2000s, they were so successful and Anybody who's a sports fan would be so blessed to see that amount of success, especially rooting for that team passionately. Like Boston's such a passionate sports city. So I'm so grateful that, you know, we've got all those championships and we had those dynasties like growing up with Manny and David Ortiz as your idols and growing up with Tom Brady, Teddy Bruschi and Nick Falk and guys like that. Like you can't trade that. And, if we're going to be fi- me- mediocre for five years, so be it, man. Like, it's okay. It, it, at least as a casual sports fan, especially now as a better, like, I'm never going to stop watching them. I mean, I I got pretty close to the NHL this year. I got pretty close to the NFL this year because the the Chiefs, that, that AFC championship game, I'm, I'm not going to get too much into it. And I know anybody who's not a Patriots fan or not a Boston fan is just going to say that I hate Patrick Mahomes, which I'm not going to sit here and say that I'm a huge fan of Patrick Mahomes. But anybody who watches that objectively, there's no way you can sit here and tell me that there was not. I'm, I, it wasn't blatantly rigged. You, you can't come out and say It's not like in fucking Saudi Arabian soccer when they come out and they talk to the referee and they're like hey change this shit right now you can look up clips of youtube you've seen you can see shit like that that doesn't happen in american sports because there's too much you know control there's too much awareness people would not allow that to have there's way too much money involved there's way too many people tied to allow something that blatant to happen however in a developed country like this, with the technological capabilities now, I, I truly believe that there's got to be some kind of outside influence there. Like, whether or not it's in a referee's meeting before the game, like, hey, uh, if we get a chance, you know, let's give KC the edge tonight. Or And, and it's not just KC. You, you can watch that in any game, especially as a better. You can watch the game, and you can tell, like, this is a this is this can't be a coincidence. There's no way that this series of events just unfolded and there's no way that this series of events continues to unfold every time I deposit any kind of money into my FanDuel and try to do a parlay. I especially with baseball. I I don't even fuck with like hits or anything. I don't try to do that. I I found my little niche with baseball betting is live betting like over/unders and I don't mess with the run line as much, but I, I I do like money lines. Sometimes, you know, if it's a blowout, I'll I'll do some run lines. You know, if it's seven one top of the fifth inning, like there's no point in betting money lines. The the odds are too ridiculous at that point. It's not worth the risk. So, you know, if it's minus five and a half, or there's a couple innings left, and you think, hey, you know, they're they're not going to get any more runs. This game's over. I'll I'll throw some money on a plus five and a half. I'm throwing in a parlay or something. But um, as far as, like, hits go and everything, it's just, it's so random. There's no way you could, uh, you can use, like, big number theory, I guess. I don't know. But uh, 
there's so many baseball games. There's so many at bats. There's just so much sample size that like there's no guarantee. Like I can go out in in NHL. I can bet on Connor McDavid to score a goal, and there's probably a seventy five percent chance that that's gonna happen. But in baseball, like even a guy like Fernando Tatis, who is one of the biggest names in the entire sport, like he might not get a hit. You would think, and they're offering, you know, Fernando Tatis to get a hit minus 375. And that, that makes sense. He's one of the biggest, he's probably the best bet to get a hit on the Padres or Machado. Machado has been, I think he had two home runs the other night, but um, it just doesn't make sense because in baseball you can, you know, reach on fielder's choice. You can get walked. You can get hit by a pitch. There's so many stupid technicalities that don't. And I shouldn't say stupid because baseball. I do respect baseball. I played a couple of years of baseball growing up, and I I know people who love the game and have been around the game, love rules and love history. And I don't want to shit and say shit on it and say that anything's stupid. But if if the guy's on fucking base, why are you not giving me credit? Like, come on. Especially, even that, that applies to total bases, too. Like, you know, they don't get total bases if they get walked or if they get hit or something. And you're sitting there, the guy's standing on first, and you're, you know, Fernando Tatis to get one hit doesn't cover. And you're just like, fuck me, man. Like, this is such bullshit that just pisses you off. So... I just avoid total bases. I uh, if I'm going into any props, pitcher props are the best in my opinion. Just even if I'll, sometimes I'll do a strikeout tree. I saw that's a pretty good strategy. Like Otani, you get like you know seven through eleven strikeouts, and the first couple that hit. And I wouldn't do this on a good. I would do this on a, if the Angels are favored by almost you know minus three hundred or something like that. They're really expecting just a blowout. Go out there and take Otani seven through 11 strikeouts. And the first two that hit might be, you know, minus 800, minus 600, whatever. It might maybe even worse than that. But two or three strikeouts, the first don't cover, are going to cover all the money that you spend. Say, say you, seven through 11. That's like, or say you take $5 and you throw $1 on each leg of the strikeout tree by the time you get halfway down the tree you're even you broke even it's not like you're throwing all your eggs in one basket if he doesn't get to 11 strikeouts it's over and you lost all your money you can break even and how many as especially if you're listening to this and you're a better tell me how many times you have been one strikeout short or you've been one of anything short on your to cover any leg it's just so common. You know that shit happens. You know they do that shit on purpose. So why not set yourself up for success and try to, try to like try to get something? Even if you break even, even if you only lose, you know, forty cents. At least you didn't lose five dollars. Like shit. Okay, so I guess transitioning out of professional sports and well, sticking in the realm of sports, I guess more personally to me, as I mentioned earlier in this, that I grew up playing hockey. I played for 13 years. So for context, I grew up, I was born on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, which is, there's a rink in every town in Massachusetts. People in New England know that. If you're from the North, hockey is way more prevalent than it is in the South. 
And I think I started skating when I was like four or five years old. My parents actually tell me the first time I skated, I hated it. I was crying. I told them I didn't want to do it again. Um, some nice lady ended up giving me some skating lessons and I was able to, uh, you know, learn how to skate pretty fast at a pretty young age. And I this is at the age where you're not really aware of yourself and what's around you. So I have very vague memories of playing hockey when I was like six, seven years old, but I got good pretty fast. Like I'm not even trying to toot my own horn. Like you can, you're scoring, if you're playing in your in-house league and you're scoring three, four goals a game, like you're one of the better kids at a younger age. Like that's just, I try to, I've always been humble. Anybody can ask me, I've been humble, but I got good pretty fast. Um, I think it was around peewee age, like 10, 11 years old is when you start getting into travel. I mean, now with everything, you got like U7, AAA, elite prospects, scout teams, stupid shit like that. But when I was growing up, it was like peewees when travel started getting like pretty intense. So um, I tried out for this team called the New England Junior Hurricanes and I ended up making it. And uh, we just do like the orientation. I start getting to meet these kids and my parents drop this bombshell on me that we're moving to Florida. And I'm the first thing I think of is like, is there even hockey in Florida? And they told me, you know, there's some teams to try out for. And I ended long story short, we end up moving to Florida. I end up first trying out for this team called the Eels. And then I played for them for a couple of years because this guy that owned the organization or whatever, it was from Boston. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, he's from Massachusetts, so I'll like him. Uh, it ended up being the wrong decision. Uh, I didn't gel into that organization. I didn't really gel initially with most of the kids that were on my team. Uh, I kind of regressed, I guess, objectively speaking. I, I went from being probably not the number one scorer on the team in travel, but top three in points and like being one of the bigger contributors on the team to just being like another face and sort of losing my confidence. And uh, it was around my first year of Bantam. So I guess two years with the Eels. And then I realized, okay, this isn't working. And one of my friends that I had made is this goalie. I mean, my parents, my parents, his parents got pretty tight and they decided to go over to the Everblades organization and I w followed him over there and I loved it. I sort of just picked up where I left off when I moved from Florida and started getting better and started really contributing and found a place and was happy. Um, I, I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, oh, if, if this I was I would have gone D1. Blah, blah, blah. Like, I think if I really stuck with it, like and I played juniors all the way through, I, I could have got to like U20 may or, or i take that back i'm sorry i misspoke if i played juniors which is u20 i could have maybe gotten a d3 scholarship you know i look back because what ended up happening is i got to u18s i was the captain of u18 double a team and we had a, like super short bench it was a shit show it was a complete mess so we we're good team but you can't compete when you got fucking 11 skaters and none of the kids care because everybody's starting to smoke weed when you're 17 so it, it just didn't work out like I could have I could have put more into it I could have been more dedicated we could have tried there there was a ton of things that could have been done differently long story short hockey didn't work out uh, although I felt that I was a good hockey player objectively speaking but when I turned 18 
because I didn't see that, hey, you know, there's, there's a pretty clear path that you're pretty much guaranteed like a scholarship or something. I was a decent student. Or I, I guess I was good enough to get into University of Florida. And I, I, I kind of just decided, hey, I would rather take this guaranteed education from a top five public university in the country rather than try it out with juniors and maybe get injured the very next year, blow out my knee, and then, oh, shit, I'm stuck at my local community college, and I could have gone. There's nothing wrong with community college, but knowing that you could have gone to University of Florida and that potentially being your reality, I chose the safe option, I guess the safe option, and just decided to, to go with that. And to be honest with you, the first couple years that I was there, I, with, without having, because I grew up with sports, I was always playing sports. Obviously, hockey was the number one focus. I was playing that almost year-round from age 5 till age 17. At one point in high school, I was playing five days a week after school, 45-minute drive after high school. And uh, I, it was just a sense of emptiness. Like, you don't have that sense of purpose. Like... Even if you're a student, like, you know, I, I, I wasn't big in the clubs. I wasn't big into it just because hockey consumes so much of my time. And that that's where I felt my sense of purpose. So it a few years, I just, you know, battled depression. I didn't feel like I had a sense of purpose on campus. I started developing some resentment towards my school and people around me. And I just thought, you know, how does everybody, how is everybody else around me so happy? How does everybody else feel like they matter? And like, I don't have anything. Like, what the fuck? You know, like, what's going on? And uh, it was actually when COVID hit. It was during the pandemic. I want to say it was around June, July. And I, th- I don't know if it was the YouTube algorithm or what it was. But like, I just started watching some golf videos or something and, uh, you know, I've been around golf just being, especially with hockey, like they're, they're kind of complement each other. I had golf clubs. I played in like one scramble before and like been to the driving range and shit, like nothing crazy, like never even kept score on a, on a round on my own before, like definitely dog shit. I could hit the ball pretty well. So I think it was June, July during COVID. And I'm just like, hey, I've got some golf clubs in my parents' garage or something. Next time I see them, I want to get them and just start going to the range. And I hit my driver the first time on the range. And it was (laughs) the most stupid looking, like, wannabe Bryson DeChambeau, single planner, locked, locked arms, disgusting swing of all time. But I somehow it was just nuking this ball i was ripping it to the back of the range and nobody else around me is doing it i mean nobody else around me is good but at the time i didn't know that and i'm just like oh shit like i might actually be good at this like this feels pretty good and i just got hooked i got the golf bug i uh i want to say from july because i had a couple friends in college who also got into into golf and that helped you know get out there and play more having somebody there to do it with you and i want to say it took me you know a couple months to break 100 um 
it took me a while to figure out my distances and stuff and really figure out irons and compressing the ball and stuff. And eventually I did, I got my distances. Um, I ended up after, so I said, this is June, July during COVID. Um, just cause this was such a weird time in my life. I actually ended up live going back. So I'm in Gainesville, Florida, going to school. My parents live in Fort Myers, Florida. So for the fall semester of that year, I decided to live home for six months, work with my stepdad, just do construction and go out on Sanibel and do the thing and, you know, play golf on the weekends with my uncle or something who's also very much into golf. And uh, I, in this time period, I ended up really, you know, practicing a lot and fine tuning my game. And during that, after that period, I moved back up to start spring, I believe the spring of 21. And I said, hey, fuck it, why not? I'm going to get a job at a golf course, and I'm just going to play free golf, and I'm going to get really good at golf. And so this is January of 21. By August of 21, I was shooting mid-80s. By Thanksgiving, I had, like, I. long story short, I'm not going to get into stupid scores and bullshit, but... I got very good, very fast. I had, and this is other people, people telling me like I had great distance. I had a great short game. I knew I had a great short. My short game is by far my strongest suit, my golf game. And that is actually what I think allowed me to lower my score the fastest. Cause I would be, it was this really, I could do an entire podcast about this golf course that I worked at and I'm going to have to tread carefully because I signed a non-disclosure. I don't want to get into any bullshit and you would understand if I explained this story more, but it was such a shit show. This place was falling apart. So there was times where in the afternoon where nobody's calling, nobody's coming in and there's a practice green and I'm working at a pro shop. It's like, why not? I'm going to grab a wedge. I'm just going to chip fuck around and get comfortable with all these shots. Cause I'm hitting 300 chip shots a day. So I was like getting to the point where after my shift, I, you know, go play around and I'm playing 18 holes or if I play 27 holes in a day, it was not uncommon for me to be like chipping in two or three times, like just insane levels of confidence, just like unconscious, but also like, because I got so good so fast, I shouldn't say so good. I just lowered my score so fast in a short period of time. What came with that was this like super ridiculous standard that I set for myself where like I'd go on the back and I would go 10 through 16, par, 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 just even par, getting into 16, 17, 18, and that's when you're on the tee box and you're like, hey, pal, you are even par through six holes. Don't fuck this up. And then you fuck it up. And it is just a mental battle. And because you have that mental battle, it pisses you off and it just snowballs and it gets to a point where it is just like, there's no playing golf when you're in that mental state. So I just let, I, I got to the point where my mental consumed me. I was in another, as I've explained to you, college was such a weird time for my life. There was no consistency in my, in my, uh, schedule or jobs or anything. So now I get another job and I'm playing golf way less. And I actually 
go back two months later, play around, and had completely lost it. And I don't know why. I should have expected it. Like I, I, I guess I didn't expect to like go out and you know shoot fucking eighty one again. Like I could do any time, but I expected to maybe like a 90 i don't know i expected my irons to be loose but i actually went out and like this is i think my stock eight iron when i was shooting like 82 like no big deal i could hit an eight iron about 158 159 like that's what the track man i could get it to max out at so like I had pretty solid distances and now I'm coming back and I am struggling to get my eight iron to go 115 yards. Like that's not like, Oh shit, I lost 10 yards. Oh, what happened? Like, uh, maybe I'm just, you know, not working out as much. That's like 50 fucking yards. And that's every single club. This is like driver 200 yards. It's like, dude, what happened? Like, and this lasted for almost two years and I'm just like I'm ADHD I have nervous energy and when something like that like I I've had rounds even when I was playing better where you feel loose and you all you can think about you're like what happened what caused what what was I doing wrong and all you want to do is go hit a thousand balls and work it out and figure out get the swing feel again and Basically, like I could do that and I could do a range session or two and I could solve my problems and work it back out. Picture that range session lasting two years where you are just tinkering and changing and doing this and doing that. And you're like, oh, wait, like this might actually work. Like this makes a lot of sense. No. Well, actually, it might be this. This has got to be at this time. No. And then this perpetuating cycle, you're just draining all your confidence. You feel like you're an idiot. You feel like you have no idea. You don't like, and I've got, as I mentioned, I've got friends, I've got family and like, I've got my uncles like trying to start a brand and like do this whole golf influencer thing. And I am at like the lowest point I, in my short golf career where it's like you're out on a golf course. You don't you don't feel like you belong. You don't want to be there. Like when you're playing really good and you have a 130-yard shot, you are sitting there licking your fucking chops. It is the greatest feeling. You are like, I want to prove to myself. I want to prove to everybody that I can hit this shot and I can hit this shot good. But when you're at that point that I was at, you're standing there and your thought process is something like, Oh man, I I remember when I used to be able to choke down on a pitching wedge and swing so smooth and just effortlessly tuck it in there to like 15 feet. And now like I have to grab a fucking seven iron or whatever it is, pray that I hit it right. And this isn't even right. It's just like, fuck that. Like I want nothing to do with it. I had so many rounds that I just ruined because I was in such a bad mental place. I ruined it for myself. I ruined it for other people. And I look back on that and it sucks. But what actually recently happened is so funny. I knew it would be something simple. My uncle, we, he just built a simulator in his garage and I just traveled home for the weekend and he ended up spending a few hours in the garage with me, just working things out. And I strengthened my grip which is funny because I've always been told that I had a super strong grip. 
just naturally. And I didn't even know what the fuck that meant. So I'm like, oh, well, okay. Like, I guess I've got a really strong grip. Like it can't get much stronger than that. So when he told me to like strengthen my grip, I was like, really? Like, are you sure? Like, this is like, this isn't as strong as it can get. And he's like, no, like grip it like a suitcase. Like you're walking through the airport, like with a suitcase, like just holding it in your fingers, curling it kind of. And, uh, I do that and I just forward pressed a little bit and it made everything going on behind me. Like my take back and my downswing, just everything was like unconscious again. Like all the big muscle groups are just doing the work and allowing for such a little amount of deviation from what this golf swing is actually supposed to be. Because I got to a point where I felt like I was getting at the top and I'm letting go of the club. And it just, you, you can't say, so if you're getting to the top of your swing and you feel like you don't have a hold of the club, like how can you possibly swing down on it with any kind of confidence? It's just impossible. So this whole thing solved that issue. It solved my short game. This whole issue is translating to that. I had no face control. I had no distance control, no touch or anything. And this just, this one fix of forward press and strengthening my grip literally translated to every aspect of my game. And I am just kind of back to, obviously I don't expect to go out and shoot 81 if I fucking went out and played an afternoon round today, but I feel like I belong on the golf course again. I feel a lot better and it's great. Like I, if there's a way that I can, I don't know, help people or discuss with people the things that they're going through in their golf game or just what, talk about the things that they've been through, the journeys that they've been on. Because, shit, whether you're me and you're at the best, at the best you've ever been, like a high single-digit handicapper, or whether you're a fucking plus-two handicapper or a pro, like all these people go through these weird phases of the yips or lack of like look at Ricky Fowler he he was on top of the golf world when he started his career I think it was last year for the U.S. Open if he wanted to play and he was a first alternate he ended up being a first alternate and literally stood on the range waiting for somebody to withdraw but he ended up getting to the point where if he wanted to play the U.S. Open he had to qualify like me and you would which is bizarre. Like, Ricky Fowler is a household name. Can you imagine? Like, like I thought my, I thought I had a fall from grace. Imagine being Ricky Fowler, and then imagine like him fucking standing on a tee box with me. How would that make you feel? <laughs> that sucks. But it's possible. He just he just won the Rocket Mortgage. Like he was able to harness that negative energy he was able to or i don't even know if it was negative energy he was just doing a swing change like he got a lot less flat than when he was when he was younger but it took time it took energy it took effort and it took perseverance and adversity to get through that and it has now paid off like you're seeing this a lot with guys like keegan bradley he was big my uncle loved him then he kind of fizzled out 
and now he's winning again. Now he's going to be on the Ryder Cup team. Stuart Sink had this happen to him last year. Like, There's so many guys that have got these stories of ups and downs and facing adversity in their golf game. Golf is such a, an incredibly unique and beautiful and just mentally tagged. There's, there's a million ways that you can describe golf, but I absolutely love it. And it's, it can be metaphorical to what place you are in your life. It can be an escape from life. It can be just so many things for people. And I'm very glad that I found it. And I'm glad that I'm going to try to, I don't know, do something with it, I guess. But, um, I guess that's really all the talking points that I have. I, like I said, I didn't really come in with any kind of organization. I, I just have a bunch of different interests and things I like to talk about. And, uh, some people like, I, I always have long phone conversations. Some people like some of my good friends, we can bullshit for two hours, but like, to some people like they're like hey dude you fucking ramble all the time or even if they don't say that you can kind of get that through nonverbal communication they're like whole they're looking at me like holy shit they just want me to shut the fuck up right now but if you're listening to a podcast i feel like you're kind of in interested in listening to what people have to say so if you manage to stumble upon this i really appreciate it again uh, i haven't named it if you managed to click on this with a name then um, you know the name before i do i guess so uh thanks for listening and uh see you next week maybe